is the season in the life of the church historically called Advent. It, it pertains, it really means in the Latin, appearing. And so we're spending some time in the season focusing on the Advent, the first coming of Christ, even as we are anticipating, eagerly waiting for the second coming. This is also the season in which pastors sort of dust off their, their old commentaries, looking for obscure pieces of Christmas trivia in order to stump their people, okay? But I know, I expect much, much more um, of you here at Four Oaks. You've had exemplary training, okay? So, so, so when we ask questions like, how many wise men? You should intuitively say, what, Jan? Okay, we... we Whatever Jan said, I won't repeat it, but that's not the correct answer, Jan, okay? We, we don't know, okay? It doesn't tell us how many gold, frankincense, and, and myrrh, but we, tradition says three, but it doesn't say for sure in God's word. Secondly, where did Jesus live after first being born in Bethlehem? Where did he live? I'm about to call on somebody else, like the slaughterbacks, okay? Well, 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 that's a point of high controversy, Prue, okay? I think he did go to Egypt, because that's what my commentary said, okay? That, that, that's, that's, but you're probably right, because you've studied God's law, word longer than I have. Okay, and what chorus were the angels singing to the shepherds in the field? What were they singing? They, they, were, not, they were not singing glory to God in the highest. It doesn't say they were singing, okay? We think they might have been chanting, okay? Which is why I've asked Josh when we sing um, Glory in Excelsis Day or at Christmas Eve, no, no, no instrumentation, all Gregorian chants, okay? So Josh is, Josh is on top of that. A question of my own that pertains to our text today, where in the Bible would you turn to find the beginning of the Christmas story? Where would you, where would you turn to find the beginning of the Christmas story? You know, some might say Matthew 2, the visit of the Magi, or Luke 2, the manger, or the pronouncement to Mary. The, the, the theologically astute among us, okay, Yaakov, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, not a bad passage to, to go to, but would you believe we might ought to think about turning to Galatians chapter 4? So you turn to Galatians chapter 4. Now, actually, you can make a compelling case that the whole Bible is a Christmas pronouncement. So, so from the very first pages of Scripture, from Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, they lost paradise, God promised them a Savior, a Messiah, someone who would come from the, the line of the woman who would crush the head of Satan, who would deliver God's people from, from their sins. And, and, and you can make a case that what we have in Scripture is the unfolding of that redemptive plan from start to finish, that, that God had a plan before the foundations of the world even, announced to us in Genesis that he was going to bring the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to save his people from their sins. And it's this mission, God's mission, that we want to talk about over these next Three weeks, And so today we're going to talk about the sender. So next week we'll talk about the sent one and then Christmas Eve the sent. But today we're going to talk about the sender. We want to look at God and who and what he did in designing this mission to do nothing less than to transform your life. To do nothing less than to save you from your sins. To save me from my sins. And Galatians 4 is where we're going to camp out. Just, just four verses here. We'll flash it on the screen for you. 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's a short passage. It's a compact passage, but it's a powerful one. In fact, in it we see your designs, your plan, your redemptive activity in a powerful way. And Lord, we're praying that you would speak to us this Advent season in such a way that our hearts would be awakened, that our eyes would be opened, that we would walk out of here today in awe, in awe, Lord, of who you are and what you've done and how you've planned the most meticulous detail to bring about the salvation of your people. So, Lord, give us fresh eyes and hearts to receive that today. We ask in your Son's name, amen. Two two things I want to direct your attention to in this passage in Galatians 4. We're first going to talk about the liberator, okay? The liberator, the one who designed this plan of salvation, the liberator. And then we're going to look at the liberated, those who have been freed because of the work and plan of the liberator. So let's let's look at the liberator first. Now, everybody, I think, in here has a favorite Christmas hymn, probably, or a favorite Christmas ditty, right? And if yours is Baby, It's Cold, you are disqualified from celebrating Christmas this year, okay? Like, you are barred from the sanctuary of God. Mine is actually um, Christmas and Hollis by Run DMC. But anyway, that's a whole other story. My favorite hymn, though, we sang it earlier today. Travis sang it. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, first translated into English in the early 1700s from Latin. We think that portions and fragments of this hymn even date back longer than that, 800 years, 1,200 years longer to the 800s. And that is old, isn't it? That is like Dave Harvey old. Okay, that's like really, sorry, Dave. I'm just, uh, Dave knows I love him. But what we have here is even older than that. This, what might possibly be the first Christmas hymn. You see, Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia. And this is early, early in the life of the New Testament church. And he is writing these, these Jewish Christians, okay, some of them are Jewish Christians, who were, they didn't know it, but they were turning away from the gospel, actually, is what was going on. See, the, these people had come into the church in, in Galatia and had been telling them that they still needed to live under Old Testament law. They needed to live under ceremonial civil law of the Old Testament, and it was based upon that obedience that they were accepted as a part of God's family. It was based upon obedience to that Old Testament law that they had fellowship and communion with each other. And Paul is writing them to say, whoa, 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 not so fast, my friend. Don't forget about Jesus. Jesus didn't come to sort of tidy up the Old Testament law. He came to fulfill it. He came to complete it. And it's because of his finished work for you 
of obedience and death on a cross that you have salvation. It's not based upon living under in conformity and obedience to this Old Testament law that's the key to your spiritual life. And, and what we have here, scholars think, is that Paul actually quotes an old hymn, okay, or an, or an ancient creed. Now, let's be honest, truth in advertising, we're not sure if it was a Christmas hymn, okay, but it should have been if it wasn't, right? Okay, there, there we go. Now, let me say this. Cre- creeds are out of vogue or have been for a long time in the life of the evangelical church. Now, now creeds have started to make a, a comeback, okay, in the last decade or so, because typically evangelicals have identified creeds as archaic and lifeless and, and just kind of formulaic and something I recited you know, in, in, in the Methodist church or the Presbyterian church that I, that I grew up in. Um, but we have to remember something. Creeds have served for 2,000 years and longer, even with God's people in the Old Testament, a vital function in the life of the church. Remember that many people were not educated or, or had trouble reading and copies of God's word were not plentiful, and they passed letters around. And so people would remember portions of Scripture, ancient truths, and take them to heart almost like kids would a nursery rhyme. And Because I, I, I grew up at First Presbyterian Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I still remember every Sunday for 20 years reciting the Apostles' Creed. Okay? I, I may not have known early on what it meant, but you could sort of pinch me after the service and I would bleed Apostles' Creed, right? Okay, I, I just, I sort of kind of intuited it. And, and, and there's something to be said. That's why, by the way, we oftentimes will quote portions of creeds, portions of catechisms. We're going to actually do a creed at the end of this service, believe it or not, right, Josh? Okay, Josh has got it ready to go for us. Because there's, there's something vital there. There, there, there's something that God's people from all ages and all times grab hold of and say, this is what unites us. There might be a lot of things that divide us. We might be different ages. We might live in different places. We have different tastes, different culture, different music, different this, different that. But, but these essential truths unite our hearts together. We're even talking as pastors that we might do something with the creeds this coming coming summer, so stay tuned. You're on the edge of your seat, I know, okay? But what we have here, and the reason we think this is part of a creed is that you can't replicate this, okay, in in a, you know, without doing it visually, won't do this, but but this is actually in a a poetic kind of form, okay? This is, this is, it's, 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 it's a little rhyme, okay? It's a little ditty, and the way it's structured was to help people remember it. And, and, and here's the creedal portion or the hymn portion of this text. Look in verse 4. You can see it kind of has a flow to it. Christians, this is great, 2,000 years ago would say this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, why was this hymn, this creed, so, so important in the life of the church in Galatia 2,000 years ago, and what does it have to do with us this Advent season? Look at the text where Paul says, in the fullness of time. That's not to get all pastorly 
uh, language on you. But, that, but, but the fullness of time is an eschatological term, and that just simply means something that we are eagerly anticipating, something that has been promised to the people of God that they are waiting for, that they are waiting for in hope, that they are eagerly expecting. You see, God's people in the Old Testament were looking forward to the day of salvation. When is God going to come and show up and deliver us from our enemies to establish his reign, his kingdom, his peace on earth? And this idea in the fullness of time, Paul's just saying, at just the right time, at just the most opportune opportunity, at just the correct moment, it's like as if God had been, re- been working and concocting this master plan behind the scenes. No one knows exactly what is going on, and he reveals it suddenly, convincingly, unexpectedly, when everything had converged and it was just the right time. See, there was a lot of things converging 2,000 years ago. One of those, and we saw this in the Daniel series, is that Alexander the Great had conquered all the, the known world. And although Alexander is no longer on the scene, the Greek culture sure is. And, and while everybody had their own dialect and their own country and their own tongue, there was one language that everyone spoke. What was it? Greek. And because there was one universal tongue, when we think about the fact that the New Testament was written in Greek and was able to be read and transmitted at lightning speeds for that time, that is, that's amazingly significant. There was also political things going on. The Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. This idea that even though Rome sort of had its thumb on everyone in the ancient world, it was a relatively peaceful ancient world. And we see this in the book of Acts, that because of this peace, people were able to travel to and fro. Paul was able to get to one side of, of, of Asia Minor, to Macedonia, to Greece, to Spain, to wherever, to Rome, to Italy. Again, relatively quickly, the time was right socially. The time was right politically. But most importantly, Paul seems to be saying here, the time was right spiritually. See, the Jews, as we've seen in the book of Daniel, had just returned from exile. And the temple had been rebuilt, and they were yearning for a king. And Paul says it was precisely at that moment, the moment had arrived. It was unexpected, but it came at just the right time. If you've ever flipped through the channels, which is always a dangerous thing, I know, okay? And, and, you, and you come across AMC or TNT or any of those movie channels, you, you probably have run across the Shawshank Redemption, okay? The short story by Stephen King that was made into a, into a movie. It is really the story, and by the way, if this is spoiler alert, this is 15 years after the fact, so I don't know where you've been. But anyway, this is the story of Andy Dufresne. And Andy Dufresne is a young married man. He's an accountant, and his wife is murdered, and he is accused of that murder and thrown into jail, a life sentence with no chance a parole. He is unjustly accused, unjustly convicted. And what he proceeds to do is for the first 20 years in Shawshank prison in Maine, he serves the hardest time you can possibly imagine. 
he is abused and beaten up and mistreated. And the warden befriends him only to manipulate him into running the, the warden's illegal gaming system and financial system that he's got going on in, in the prison. And, and, and all these terrible things are happening to Andy until one day, one day, a fellow prisoner shows up and has conclusive proof that Andy, in fact, is innocent. Now, now you know everyone in prison is innocent, right? Okay. But, but Andy truly is innocent. And, and, and the guy tells him and shows him and this evidence, and so Andy goes to this warden, and he makes his plea to the warden, warden, this is, this is my once-in-a-chance lifetime opportunity to, to, to get out of here. And it shows the warden just crushing his hopes. He throws him into 60 days of isolation and has him beaten and, and kills and murders this witness that was going to testify on Andy's behalf. And as a viewer, you were drawn in. And you're saying, this is not right. This is unjust. This is not, this is not fair. Where, where is redemption in this story? Who is going to, to show up and save the day? And just when, and just as the Jews and mankind 2,000 years ago, when Andy seemed at his lowest point, you know what happens. They open the cell one morning, and Andy is gone. Because he has been plotting for 20 years his escape from Shawshank Redemption. He has planned it in meticulous detail. He gets a rock hammer, which you use to do shaped jewels and stones, and he's been chiseling through the wall for 20 years. He, is, he has constructed this elaborate financial system for the warden with the idea that one day he would get out and steal the warden's identity and cash in all this money and then turn in the warden to the authorities. I mean, and all of this is revealed in this one dramatic scene, and you are left agape. See, that's, that's what Paul says has happened. Jesus has come on the scene unexpectedly. It has changed and transformed everything at just the right time. Let me ask you a question just personally. Are you wrestling with the issue of timing in your life? Is there something you're anticipating is there some piece of news or some development that you have been waiting days, weeks, months, years, a lifetime to change? Maybe you're, you're, you've grown weary of checking this month's pregnancy test. Or, or, or you have an imminent piece of news coming back from that pathology report. Or, or, or you're just holding your breath, waiting for the phone call about the family member or the, or the son or daughter that you haven't talked to in a year. What, what is your heart this Advent season longingly anticipating, Four Oaks? Where, where is that hole in your heart that yearns for redemption, that yearns for some sort of resolution. If Paul were here, I think this is what he would tell us. Whether you know it or not, what you have really been waiting for has already arrived. You see, Andy, Andy Dufresne doesn't know it, 
But what his heart longs for is for someone to come and set things right. To make the definitive statement, to bring redemption in the hour that it's most needed. If your soul is restless this morning like mine is, like all of ours are, and maybe even more acutely in this season, Paul wants to remind us that in the fullness of time, God sent his son. See, God's plan was to send his son to make us sons. And that's the most profound, life-changing, world-changing piece of news anyone could ever grapple with. What are you anticipating today? Because my, my prayer as a church family is that we would have our eyes and hearts open, not, 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 not to deny our pain or our struggle or the emptiness or the restlessness, not to deny those things, but to know they speak to something else our heart desires even more. And that's to be made right. That's to be made whole. That's to become a son of God. Everyone in the history of planet Earth is designed in this way. Your coworkers, your friends, your neighbors. Talk to them over the holidays and you will find out the issues in, the life, in their lives, the things they are struggling with, where they are restless, where they're anxious, where, where, what they're placing their hope in. And what a magnificent opportunity to say, in the fullness of time, at just the right time, God sent us what we needed the most. So what happens for us? That's the plan of the liberator. Now what happens for us, the liberated? Let's look back at the text. And we're still in the creedal portion of the text here. It says that in the fullness of time, we just talked about that, it says God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, there's two things that the ancient church was jealous to preserve in their knowledge about Christ, and there are two things that we need to be jealous of preserving as well. And they're things that we've heard, and if we've grown up in the church, we've heard them so often, they just, they don't have any deep penetrating meaning anymore. But we need to be reminded of them this morning because they are the heart of what God has done for us in sending his son. And here's the first. Jesus, number one, Jesus was in fact an actual man. I want us to think about that for a second. The the Greek, genomenon geniakos. It sounds like something one of the Muppets would say, okay? But it literally means born of a woman. Born of a woman. And the early church fought literally to the death at some point in his first 300 years to maintain the truth of that statement. Jesus was actually a man. You see, they were, they were jealous to guard this idea against Greek mythology and other influences of the day that, that God sort of came down like a Greek god and sort of posed as a man, okay? posed as a human, that he was God, yes, but the human experience was just sort of attached to his divine nature. That God was just kind of visiting, but really didn't take on something so base and natural and dirty as 
as humanity. I mean, that, that is just, that's blasphemy. That's, that's just, that's, that's uncouth. That's beneath us. And the church, as part of its creedal statements, was jealous to say, genomenon, born of a woman. And the reason they said this was so important is because of what Paul goes on to say. Look in verse 7. Verse 6, verse 5 and 6. He says, in order to save us, Paul says, Jesus had to be born as a man under the law. Okay, that's a term related to citizenship. In other words, obligated to live by and under and submission to the law of the land. It says Jesus had to be a man because he had to come and live under God's Old Testament stipulations and to obey them perfectly. And nothing less than a man would do. Because back in um, the 90s, 1990s, Susan and I were still dating and breaking up and dating and breaking up, okay? And, and I went one summer to, to what I thought with Cru- Campus Crusade, I was going to Manila, the Philippines. And before we went to Manila, they gave us the whole lay of the land, the, the, the law of the land, the rule of the country. Here are the do's and the don'ts. And basically, you could boil the experience in Manila, in, the, in Manila, they told us to this. You can basically do whatever you want to do, okay, <laughs> when it comes to Jesus, you can talk about Jesus, you can pray in public, you can gather and worship, the fields are, are wide, and the harvest is, is ripe, and man, and so we, we were good to go. But right before we left, there was a threat made by the communist guerrillas against Campus Crusade and other missionaries, and they diverted us to a place that I'd hardly even heard of called Singapore. Okay? And, and in Singapore, I think it's just easiest to say Singapore is not Manila, okay? Singapore, I kid you not, we landed in the airport. I thought we were landing in the Taj Mahal. Okay? There, there, there was not one, you would drive along the interstates, there was not one single piece of trash around anywhere because they would fine you $400 for littering okay? and not flushing the toilet, by the way. Okay? So it seemed like there were so many rules. It was so oppressive. We just really spent the whole summer trying to figure out how not to get arrested. Okay, that, that, that's essentially what we were trying to do, trying to avoid that. Because we had no hope of knowing all the laws, much less obeying them. See, this is, this is what Paul's saying is going on here. God gave the Old Testament law to the Jews, and they couldn't do it. They couldn't obey it. They, 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 they failed and were futile in their attempts. And by the way, guys, when you make the law the ethic of your life, it will crush you. Parents, it will crush your children. Okay? Churches will crush one another when that is made the highest ethic. Make, make no mistake, God's law is important. His holiness is crucial. We're talking about the ceremony and civil aspects of this Old Testament law. God's people could not keep it. They were still saved by grace. They were still saved by faith, but they were testarily asking God, please send someone to free us. Send someone to stand in our place. And that's what Jesus did. As a man, only a man can replace and stand in place of another 
man. And the church was incredibly jealous to protect this. But Paul goes on. Let's look back at the text. He says, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When, when, when it says that God sent, there's a second thing that Paul and the ancient church were affirming, and here's what it was. Yes, Jesus was unequivocally 100% man, absolutely. But make no mistake, and this is a word for the, for the 21st century postmodern millennial culture, Jesus was and is nothing less than God. He is not 50% man and 50% God. He's not 90% man and 10% God. He is 100% man and 100% God. And you may say, where do we see that in the text? Guys, when it says that God sent, the idea is that Jesus already existed. Okay? God did not make Jesus. God did not create a superhero. Okay, this was not like Captain America stuck in the depressurized chamber to go out and win the world. No, 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 that, that's not what's going on here. Jesus already existed, coexisted with the Father, the Holy Spirit, the pre-incarnate Word. He was God first. And as God, the Father looked at Jesus and sent him on this mission as a man and as God. Because here, here, here's the deal. Jesus had to be God. He had to be man, but he had to be God because no mere man can die for another and save them from their sins. No mere man can do that. Guys, parents, we would do anything for our kids, right? Sacrifice for them, die for them. The one thing you can never do is to pay for their sins. No human can do that. Only God can. Only God has the power to buy back and redeem and save his people from their sins. And, and in the history of the church, the church is always wanting, it's, it, it, there's a call to live in this tension that Jesus is God, Jesus is man. The church, when it deviates, is going off on one side of the ditch or the other. So, the last 50 years of the 20th century, um, as evangelicals in the church, it was all about Jesus is God, which, which is good. Okay? Jesus as the foundation, Jesus as our authority, Jesus and his word. None of that social gospel, yucky sort of stuff. That, that, that will pollute this idea of, 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 of the purity of the gospel. When in reality, Jesus says a lot, doesn't he? About how to love your neighbor and how to serve each other and how to live for the benefit of those that are around you. And, and, and so what happens is that there's been another swing, right? So, the last, so, so this is a generation, by the way, that loves Jesus as a man, right? See, we love his ethical teachings and that he's good and that he's moral and that, and that there's, a, there's such a simple thing. It's so tempting. Just do as Jesus does, but we have to remember, he's still God. He still makes claims on our lives. This, this whole Old Testament thing that many evangelicals are embarrassed about, Jesus says, I believe that. That whole thing is about me. And I come not just doing good and healing people, absolutely I do that, but I come speaking about the most important issues, 
heaven and hell, life and death, exclusivity. The only way to the Father is through me. And so the church, and we see this in this hymn, is eager to maintain these two dimensions. But here's the deal. You can know what I just said. You could, you could agree theologically with everything that I've just said for the past 25 minutes and have no hope. You can believe it. I mean, you can believe it intellectually. You can affirm it as in a creedal statement. But that does not necessarily mean that it has grabbed hold of your heart and life. Because if it was, Paul would have ended there. But he doesn't. He said there's two things. We're going to close with these. There's two things that happen. There's two things that God wants to see or has accomplished through the sending of his son that Paul points to in this text. Let's look look back there. Verse 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Now, what does that term mean, to redeem? Literally means buy back, to exchange. So, so the Gilbert Entourage, we decided that we were going to get in that mess of cars and go see the, the nativity, live nativity thing over at Clarion United Methodist. God bless their souls for doing that each and every year, right, for the past 30 years so we can enjoy. But, 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 no, but, but, but no run through the nativity is, 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 is ready, okay, is set until we make our customary run to Newberry. Okay, everybody got this? So, so, so we go into Newberry where we, we spend $89 for yogurt for the family, okay? And it's worth every, every cent, okay? Even though we had to give up cable TV, all right, to make it happen for us, okay? But one of my favorite things about, about going to Newberry is when they give you this. Have you guys seen this? Okay, yes, oh yeah. It's the Newberry punch card. And, and, and when you go enough times and spend enough money, they punch your card full of holes, and the next time you go in, you get free yogurt, okay? Now forget that you spent $5,000 to get a $2 cup, okay? Forget that entirely. But it just makes the yogurt all the sweeter, right? When, when, you, when you walk in, you say, I want to exchange this for this. Paul says that's what Jesus has done, but, 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 but what has he swapped? What, what, what's the swap that's happened here? This is amazing. He's swapped his life for yours, He's redeemed you by his life and his death. Look at Galatians 3. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. You hear that? If you're trying to appease God solely by your obedience, Paul says you are cursed. You are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul says if you... if you want to go at it, world, go at it. But you're cursed. And, 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 and by the way, as Christians, why do we believe it is so, it is so wrong to take the Lord's name in vain? Do you realize what we're wishing upon people when we ask God to damn them? It's the worst thing that you could ever ask God to do to any one person. But that was our condition. Now listen to this, though. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. You see, 
you and I were cursed. We were under a curse. We were under the curse of God. But Jesus, by his life and death, exchanged his life and death for our life and death, which, which means he gets our sin. He is cursed by God on the cross. We get his righteousness. We are bought back. We are exchanged. And look in verse 7. So Paul says, you are no longer a slave. Because there's a lot of things that, that bind us, a lot of things that, that we're bound up in. We're, we're, we're a society of, of addictions and compulsions and a whole host of other illicit activities. And we are desperately looking for deliverance. You need to know, when you are in the Son, you are free. You are free indeed because God has bought you back. You, are, you may struggle with all those things, but it's no longer your fundamental identity. But, but Pastor Paul, and I'm, I'm going to say things right now that, are, that aren't in the notes that might get on somebody's toes, okay? But, but Pastor Paul, I, I, I am a blank, okay? Whatever kind of addict, just fill in the blank. No, you're not. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation. You're someone who struggles with X. Pastor Paul, I feel, so, I feel, I feel like my whole identity is, is shaped by this particular thing. No, it's not. In Christ, you are a new creation. You struggle, yes, I know. But it's not fundamentally who you are. But there's a second thing that happens besides redemption. It's something that Paul calls adoption. Now, let me use this example to talk about why I think this is so important to get alongside of redemption. Because as awesome as redemption is, please hear this, redemption is not enough. Redemption is not enough. Imagine you're, um, you're, you're a prisoner of war behind enemy lines, and the commando team has come in to save you, and they free you, they redeem you, they take you out of the front gates of the concentration camp, and they simply drop you off on the side of the road and say, go for it. You've got no money. You don't know the language. You don't have transportation. You're in hostile enemy territory. No money, no food. You're on the run. See, what you need most at that moment is not your freedom, although you need it. What you really need is a new identity, don't you? You need a new status. And that's what Paul means when he uses this word adoption. It means to be instated as sons. Now, we've all heard the term trust fund baby, right? It means someone born into privilege. By virtue of their biological connections, they get all the status and the rights and the privileges of belonging to that family. But in adoption, there is no biological component. This child, this person, there's no biological attachment. They are brought into the home, and they are given the exact same legal status and privileges of those who were born into it. Here's what Paul's saying. Jesus, he was not born. Jesus is part of the family. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus has 
rights and privileges and blessings. Now hear this, Four Oaks. When you are in Christ, all of those rights and privileges and blessings become yours. You're not just freed, but you have a new identity. See, the spirit that indwells Christ now indwells you. The righteousness that Christ has before the Father, guess what? It's now your righteousness before the Father. Paul significantly says, just as Jesus calls the Father Abba, which is a term of intimacy and communion and access, he says, Christian, now hear this, you have the exact same access this morning. Intimate access. Instant access to God just as if you had never sinned. And you may say, Pastor Paul, that, that is just crazy talk. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've lived. You don't know what I struggle with. There's no way God views me in that way. Guys, when, G, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. Every blessing status says here, inheritance, we are now heirs. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us so that by being virtue of a son of God, a daughter of God, we have relationship with him. The mission of God was nothing less than your redemption and your adoption. And that is available to anyone here who simply places and trusts and confesses their sin and turns to Jesus Christ. 